Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. When you're talking about this idea that you must have this passion or know what you want or even this sense of purpose, I think we've in a way gone too far with that. And then when we work on their brand, there's three aspects to a brand. You know, for it to really be effective, it's got to be visible, authentic and have authority. What is it that you seem to just find easier than everybody else? Because often the things we find easy, we don't value, but they're actually the things we're naturally good at. Hi, this is Harsha, and I wanted to mention a few exciting developments. Firstly, a huge thanks to everyone who has listened to the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast since its launch. I'm so pleased and grateful that we have now passed over 1,200 downloads. Thanks also to the amazing guests who have so generously given up their time for the podcast. Some listeners may not know, but there's also Reframe and Reset Your Career YouTube channel, which shows video highlights of the podcast interviews. The first upload was in March and we have now passed well over 1,700 views. Thanks so much for this too. It should be easy to find, but I will leave the link below in the show notes. I have also started writing a book on career development, and I will be sharing some thoughts and extracts from it, so do keep an eye open. Finally, it would be great to hear feedback from you, the listeners. Please do get in touch via the social media links or email me at the email address in the show notes. Thanks for your support, and on with the show. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Emily West. Hello, Emily. Hi, Harsha. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for giving up your Good Friday to record with me. I'm I'm really excited. This is a great way to spend Good Friday. (laughs) Excellent. Emily is passionate about empowering individuals and businesses to achieve their goals through transformational change and to draw on her extensive experience working in investment banking and personal development to achieve this. She offers coaching, business consulting, and professional speaking services across a range of areas, including leadership, brand and image, well-being, and emotional intelligence. She has 14 years investment banking experience, most recently heading up the leadership development program for RBS corporate and institutional banking transforming leadership and well-being for over a thousand staff. She was also head of personal development for the RBS Women's Network. As a nutritional therapist, she specializes in stress management and working with companies to set up educational and engaging well-being programs that will make a tangible difference to individuals' health and resilience through practical and easy-to-make changes. As well as providing mentorship for young professionals, she also supports the charities Action for Children and the HER Centre. Welcome, Emily. 
Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. It's my complete pleasure, Emily, and thank, thanks so much again for giving up your time. So the way I like to start the podcast is asking my guests, do they have a quote that they would like to share with, with me and the listeners? I do indeed. I had to think about this because I have several favourite books. And this quote is actually a quote in a book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers, which is one of my favourite books in terms of building confidence. Um, but the quote is from John Shedd, who is an American, was an American author around the turn of the century. And his quote is, ships in harbour are safe, but that's not what ships are built for. And I just think this really applies to people so much that we can keep ourselves safe and comfortable our whole lives and not stretch ourselves and not get outside our comfort zones. But that's not really what we're built for. We're actually incredibly resilient. And if you want to discover what you're really good at and what you're really capable of, and actually, if you want to get to know yourself properly, you have to get out to sea and challenge yourself. So that's why I picked that quote. No, that, that's a great quote, Emily. And I think that really resonates with the podcast because I think this is about trying to help people almost try and get out of their comfort zone, but in a, we're using small steps. And I think a lot of us are quite frightened and we're trying to navigate the new environment with COVID. So I think that's an amazing quote. Th thanks for sharing that. I've never come across that guy before. So we learn something every day. <laughs> we do indeed. Brilliant. So Emily, would you like to just uh, tell us about your early life and why you chose to study economics at Warwick? Well, I was brought up on the south coast of the UK. I have a French mum and an English dad, and I was brought up by the sea. So that's also why the ship uh, quote is, is relevant. That was a lot of my childhood was sailing and being in or near the sea. And I was very lucky to go to some very good schools. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. As a child, I had lots of ideas. You know, we, we have these ideas. I wanted to be a fashion designer at one point. We also look at adults when we're children and we copy them. Now, my sister, she had decided really early on she wanted to be a doctor and she just knew she wanted to do that. And that's what she did. But I didn't ever have a moment where I thought, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I certainly never imagined I'd end up here. But my dad's best friend, who seemed like he was a very happy guy having a really good life, was an accountant. So in my naive sense as a child, I thought, oh, well, if I become an accountant, I'll be as happy as he is. And he had a really beautiful sports car and he had a speedboat and he seemed to be having a great life. So I thought, I'll do that. So when I was 16, my school arranged work experience. And this is so good if you get to do this, if your children get to do this. But at any point in life, you know, when I'm working with clients now who are changing careers later on in life, I always say, see if you can try it on first. Go exploring, try out the job, because that's the only way you find out if you like it or not. So I did a week's work experience in an accountancy firm. And unfortunately, by the end of the week, I thought to myself, this is pretty dull. Now, I apologize to all accountants who love their jobs, but it just wasn't for me. So I went back to my careers advisor and she gave me this book. And I went into the chapter on books, uh, jobs in finance. I remember reading it. And it basically had this short paragraph on investment banking that said it was more fast paced. You know, it was a fast paced environment. So I thought, OK, more interesting. And you earned more money. So I thought, great, more speedboats and fast cars. <laughs> so I literally just looked at that book. And then I looked at what, what can you study to become an investment banker? And economics was one of them. So it, it wasn't a particularly well thought out choice. But at the same time, my mum is very interested in economics and politics. And it's something our family's always talked about. So 
So I had some interest, but I honestly went and started my degree in a very naive state. And I was fortunate to go to Warwick, which actually has a fantastic economics department. And so it wasn't until I was there that I actually fell in love with my degree choice and really enjoyed it. But it was it was more of a happy accident than a very sensible decision. Oh, brilliant. And, and just for our listeners, Emily is not materialistic and transactional. She's a very <laughs> nice person. So I didn't end up with the speedboat. <laughs> <laughs> and the fast car. <laughs> No, I've got, I have a mini that I love, but no, but you know what? It's sometimes inspiration. It might be misplaced, but it inspired me to end up doing great things. So I'm very grateful for that inspiration that I had. But it's it's interesting you say that, Emily, because I, I don't think that's a silly route that you took because so many people have no clue about what they wanted to do. And I, I did economics as well um, at, at university. And one of the reasons I did that was I met a family friend and he said, oh, this is interesting. I was thinking about doing natural sciences. And I'm so glad that I didn't because I, I would have ended up in the lab for God knows how many hours every, every week. So it's funny how these things um, work out. It is. And I actually was thinking about doing physics as well because uh, a few family members have done physics degrees. And also I seem to naturally be quite good at physics. But I was one thing I was as a child that I still am as an adult was very curious and I asked a lot of questions. So I asked my physics teacher, what job would I likely end up doing if I studied physics? And he was very honest and he said, you'll probably end up either a teacher or an accountant. <laughs> and I immediately, I immediately thought, no, I'm trying not to be an accountant. So I moved away from that. And it's, it's a shame in a way, because I know a lot of women are deterred from science because of the, there's some limits on what you might end up doing job wise afterwards. But there's also some amazing jobs that I maybe would have end up, ended up doing if I'd done physics. And this is the beauty of life. Every choice you make may lead you somewhere else, but all the places you could have ended up may have all been wonderful. So I, I think we don't need to worry about making the right choice as much as we think we do. Yeah, and I think that's that whole idea of looking back and regretting. I think that's really silly. It's it's about, I think, looking forward. You make your choice, whatever it is, and you, you, you make the best of it. Absolutely. There's a power in reflection. I do take my clients sometimes through an exercise where we review the big decisions in life and what they might have done differently or what they learned. So there is a power in reflection, but I definitely agree. There's no point dwelling in regret. You should only reflect if you're going to learn and do something with it. Definitely sitting and stewing. And, and you don't even know because sometimes things that seem like bad decisions a few years later even turn out to be good ones. So you don't even know straight away whether you've made a good choice or not. Or it's like those decisions which aren't really made for you when your sort of girlfriend dumps you or your boyfriend dumps you. <laughs> yes. You're heartbroken at the time, but maybe that's not such a bad thing in retrospect. <laughs> exactly. Well, I always tell my friends, I, I don't do any relationship counselling or coaching, but I do tell my friends, you know, think about your first ever boyfriend or girlfriend and imagine if you were still with them. <laughs> right? And maybe it will be a good outcome. I don't know. But if, if you don't necessarily like how that picture looks, then then you will have had to have had some heartbreak along the way and some relationships end and some new ones start. That's just how life is. Totally. Moving back to uh, careers, um, <laughs> I, I see that you started off obviously in, in investment banking. So what, what sort of brought you to that? Well, I you know, I had this idea that it was going to be a fast paced place and I'd enjoy it and I'd make money. So I was very fortunate to get an internship after my second year of economics at Dresden Climate Waterstein. And I got an internship in the corporate finance department, which I loved. 
But mainly I realized I loved it because I just had such good luck. I'd ended up with an amazing team of people. So I had a super fun summer in London. I'd always had summer jobs, but this one was a well-paid summer job. The city of London is, a, is and was more so then a very sociable place, as you know. So I had the best summer and thought, well, this is a brilliant life. I must do this. And then I graduated the next year and I started work two weeks after graduating. So I didn't even have a break. I went straight wow. into the job. Yeah, it was great, but it was quite stressful. And on top of this, I have always had some health problems. I've always had digestive problems my whole childhood. And so I went in straight into work and it was quite stressful. So my health started to deteriorate, but I loved the job. Anyway, what happened was three months into this job, I got made redundant. I had a real schooling, like a real welcome to the world of banking because three months in, I lost my job, which was obviously a shock. But at the same time, because I wasn't well, I was actually really relieved and I was able to get some help and take care of my health and actually talk my way back into another job. So Dresden Climate Wasser Team were great because they gave me some time off and then they actually hired me back, which is brilliant. Wow. And so I in, ended up being a research analyst in fixed income. But again, this was purely by accident. This wasn't my plan. But they said, well, you've got an economics degree. Why don't you interview for this job? And then the funny thing is, I suddenly found myself covering LATAM sovereigns, writing about economics. And I suddenly thought, gosh, I'm actually using my degree, which is something we don't expect to do these days. And I was thinking, gosh, I really wish I'd paid more attention in macroeconomics <laughs> and just trying to remember about the balance of payments and inflation. But it was brilliant. And I'm so glad because I actually got to use my degree and really see how economics is so fundamental to how the world works. So it was it was a true blessing. But obviously, that was a huge roller coaster to go through so young. I think that's a great point you make, this whole idea of luck and also making your own luck. Because you could easily said, look, finance isn't for me. Investment banking isn't for me. I've been uh, not treated very well. But you actually came back. And I think sometimes you make your own luck to a certain extent. And it's a way you look at the world. Oh, absolutely. And, I, and there are moments in there that you might call lucky, but were also due to my tenacity, my confidence to put myself forward and to take a job that I hadn't really planned on doing. And I also used my network. You know, before when I was interviewing for that job, I asked lots of people for advice. I asked people who worked in the area, what will they be looking for? So I was making sure I was as prepared as possible for that interview because I did really want a job. I really wanted the independence and I loved being in the city. So so definitely I made it happen in some ways. And I'm hugely grateful to Dresden that they'd also given me the time off and, and the opportunity to find another job with them. And then I think from there you went to RBS. Is, is that correct, Emily? Yes. Well, I was a research analyst for four years at, at Dresden. It was a fascinating job. But at the same time, I started to realise that 12 hours a day in front of a spreadsheet wasn't really my thing. And there was this real crux moment where they offered for me to study for my CFA. And as you know, that's a quite a prestigious qualification to have and study for, and it's good to do it. But at the same time, I'd had another challenge with my health and gone back to my trusty nutritional therapist. And I'd really had my eyes opened to the impact of nutrition and lifestyle on your health. And I just, not only had it changed my life, not only had 80% of the symptoms I'd had my entire childhood had gone. So, and I felt so much better. Not only had that happened, but I was just fascinated by the entire topic. It tapped into my love of sciences, coming back to my study of biology. So when my boss sat me down and said, we'd like you to do the CFA and we're going to give you time off to study for it, it's some big honour, there was this terrible pause. And then I said, I don't think I want to do it. 
<laughs> my boss looked so confused and he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to study, but I want to do a degree in nutritional therapy. So that was obviously a big moment where I realized I'm not going to be a research analyst for life. So actually, I ended up moving to RBS because I wanted a job that had a better work-life balance so I could finish my degree. So it wasn't really, again, a very strategic career move. It was more trying to find a job that was a bit more suited to me. And I ended up in, in management, in managing desktop publishing for the research department. So it was, again, that wasn't an intentional move, but ultimately it turned out to be a really good decision. I think that's a great point. This whole idea of you thinking about yourself, what you're good at, but also the bigger picture, your work-life balance, because I think that's so important. And especially these days, if you're not sort of mentally happy and physically happy, then how can you show up and, and do good work for any company? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the re the reason that all came about was because during that time at Dresden, I actually burnt out quite spectacularly. And I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And I really hadn't, I suddenly went from having loads of energy to no energy. I couldn't exercise. I had to have time off work. It was really stressful. And that was, that was a tough time. And it actually took a couple of years to really get back to full power from that. And so people say, oh, you know, in some ways you've had a tough time. You had all these digestive problems. You had chronic fatigue syndrome. You know, that's a real challenge. And I tell you, it was tough. It was really tough. If you're in an industry that's as demanding as investment banking and you have health issues, it's very difficult to navigate. It's much better now, but then they weren't particularly supportive if you were ill. I mean, my boss at Dresden was great, but as a whole in that industry, you felt like this is pretty precarious. Like I could lose my job. For me, that was really stressful. But at the same time, I think it was a total gift because I learned in my early 20s, A, the importance of taking care of myself and having time off and having a work-life balance and managing my stress levels. And I also actually studied how to do it, what to eat, you know, if you're feeling ill, what supplements to take to help you get better, how to have the best immune system you can. And so I think it's actually the most wonderful thing that happened to me because I learned these amazing skills, this amazing knowledge that not only have I used my entire life, and I went on to have this great career in investment banking, which I couldn't have done if I hadn't taken care of my health. But then even better, I got to set up a well-being program at RBS for over a thousand people. And I got to go off in my own practice and help people with their health and resilience. So I think it was actually a really amazing gift that that happened to me so young. Brilliant. And, and, and essentially, I think that has almost answered my next question uh, about uh, moving out of finance. So essentially, you found something that you really enjoyed in terms of the well-being and you studied for that. So almost having a side hustle at, at the same time as doing your job, which I think is, is now much more popular. But back then, you know, most people were just thinking, I'll do my job, keep my nose clean, my boss will like me and I'll get looked after. So that's quite interesting the way you made that transition out. Well, I when I started at RBS, I had that full intention that I would just have a secret side hustle. And then when it was the right moment, I would just exit stage left. But then what happened at RBS was the first job they gave me was managing a team. And I'd never done that before. And they took a gamble on me. And it was fantastic. And I suddenly realized I loved managing people. I loved managing departments, taking care of a business. So while I, I started with this, almost this idea that I would start and then leave, I then discovered something I was really good at, which was managing people and getting the best out of them. So suddenly my career in banking starts taking off because I'm playing to my strengths and doing something I enjoy, which is really key to success. And so I end up being promoted to business manager. And ultimately, in a, in a surprise twist, I ended up being made head of fixed income research, which was very unexpected 
given I already decided I didn't want to be a research analyst. And so suddenly my banking career took off and I really, really enjoyed it. So I had to actually put my side hustle on, on hold for a bit while I focused on that. But there was this magnificent moment where ultimately I'd been made head of leadership for the investment bank. And I had the just the best job where I was given carte blanche to set up a coaching team to bring people in from the business and then train them up to be coaches and then put them back out in the business to coach best practice, leadership and management and sales. And it was just an absolute dream job. And I had a really supportive CEO who was also very into health and fitness. And so there was this great moment where I kind of came out as a nutritional therapist and said, oh, by the way, secretly, I've done this degree and I'm actually highly qualified to set up a well-being program here. And I had his support when he funded the program. So it, it was amazing how it all came together. These things that I thought would be so separate actually all came together at the end. And then obviously it was a big decision to leave. I'd been there 10 years. I'd had a terrific time there. But at the same time, there was this feeling I had that in a way I wanted to work with more individuals with smaller businesses and actually be able to have a platform to reach more people through the talks that I do. So it was in some ways, if I stayed in banking, although I loved it, it was constraining me. That's what really drew me to leave. But that final job I had was just an absolute dream. So it was um, it was a really nice way in a way to finish my investment banking career. Yeah, brilliant. And I really like the point you make about almost finding your passion in this sort of serendipitous, slightly circuitous way. People always say, look, find your passion and go after that. But for a lot of people, you don't know what your passion is. And until you try a few things uh, and, and realize that you're good at it, because it, it could all well be being that you, you love doing something, but you're awful at doing it. So you really can't, <laughs> you can't turn that into a job. So you have to obviously love something, you have to be competent, but you also have to be able to have an impact and a boss who gives you the chance to do things. Oh, totally. I mean, there's a couple of points there. First of all, I do sometimes caution my clients that if you turn your hobbies into a full-time job, you may stop enjoying them. So you have to also bear that in mind. But when you're talking about this idea that you must have this passion or know what you want, or even the sense of purpose, I think we've in a way gone too far with that and now I meet a lot of people who feel this pressure very early on in their career to know what their perfect job will be what their passion will be and by the way we're always going to change so it's very rare that your perfect job would be your job for life but there's all this pressure so young to know what you're meant to be here to do and to make the exact right job decision and as you can see from my career there were a lot of changes of direction on the way there was not a oh, I know exactly what I'm doing. Here's the methodical plan. And then if we look back to our parents, you know, my dad had almost the same job for life. He had two employers and he did the same thing and he loved it. But he he didn't expect that his job would fulfill every part of his life and it would be the be all and end all. He was a great role model for work-life balance. His passion was sailing and that's what he loved doing outside of work. So we've kind of gone from this generation before us where you weren't expected to even like your job. You were just expected to do it and get paid and enjoy yourself outside of work. And then if you think about the generation after us, Harsha, where they want their job to be the most amazing, fulfilling thing. And everyone has got to do something brilliant and everyone feels like they must be an entrepreneur, which is totally not true. And it creates its own pressure. And, you know, in, in Buddhism, there's, they always talk about the middle path. And I talk to my clients about this a lot because we tend to deal in extremes. And I say, there's a middle path. For me, the middle path was, I don't exactly know what I'm meant to be doing or what I'm really, really good at. So why don't I try and find it out? 
And whilst I do that, why don't I work in an industry with really intelligent people who I can learn a lot of? And also, I had the added benefit that it was a very well-paid industry to work in. And I think there's nothing wrong as a young person with saying, I'm just going to do a job that's pretty well-paid and sets me up while I work out what I want to do next. And at the same time, I might you know, put some savings aside. So if one day I want to start up a business, I actually have some backing to do that rather than trying to do it the minute you come out of school or university. I think there are kinder ways that we can do these things. That's such a, a great point, Emily. Moving on from finance, what, what I'm really interested in terms of uh, presenting yourself in the job market or just in, in, in life in general is the whole idea of branding and personal branding. Mm. And I think for you, that's quite an important area and you have quite a lot of experience in that. Yes, absolutely. Well, I was very lucky because when I... When I lost that job, I got sent to this very posh job centre for bankers by Dresner. So I said they were really a very supportive employer. They sent me off for some training on how to get another job. I mean, they were really helping me. And I went to this seminar on personal branding and I had no idea what a personal brand was or the idea that you could influence how people would describe you to others. I mean, I just never thought about it. And this woman gave this great talk all about how you present yourself, body language, you know, how you talk about yourself. And then at the end of it, she actually took me aside and said, Emily, you're very young looking and you're in a very male dominated industry. You need all the help you can get. Go and see an image consultant and they're going to tell you how to dress. I mean, I, I was a bit confused, but I was very obedient. So I went and did what she said and I, my eyes were opened and I suddenly understood about how you present yourself is so key in whether people respect you and listen to you and take you seriously. So again, I was lucky because I learned that really young and I used everything I learned in my banking career. And it definitely helped me not only get to a senior position, but when I was in a senior position quite young to have that authority and presence and, and give myself confidence that I could take charge of the room, take charge of the meeting and that I deserve to be there. So when I left, I knew that that was going to be part of my coaching practice was helping people think consciously about their personal brand and how they present and project themselves. Because in the days now where we have quite a casual workwear, you know, we have this smart, casual no man's land where no one knows how to dress for work. People aren't thinking as much about how they dress. And actually, if you think about it, and you think about your brand and how you present yourself, you can have a huge advantage over other people in terms of getting promoted or getting the next job you interview for. So I think it's really important. And I think people underestimate it and don't think about it. And, and thank you, Emily, for turning up so smartly dressed today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you wouldn't expect anything less, would you? But but in terms of uh, the whole personal brand, how do you think people should try and develop it? I think you, you mentioned that you had a, a three-step process. Is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, when I'm working with my clients, one of the things I do is I get them to spend some time reflecting on what they're good at, what their natural strengths are, maybe what they think their colleagues would say about them behind their back or what's in their 360 feedback. So we, I help them, first of all, understand themselves and what we're trying to present and also the context of the business they're in. You know, what are they looking for if, if you want to get promoted? I help people with promotions all the time. Well, what are the promotions criteria? What are they looking for? Are we getting that across? And then when we work on their brand, there's three aspects to a brand. You know, for it to really be effective, it's got to be visible, authentic, and have authority. So by visible, partly I mean how you dress. You know, everyone's on their Zoom calls wearing black or gray or neutral colors. Just wearing a bit of color when you're in a meeting makes you visible, dressing well. But also it's 
do you put yourself forward to host a meeting or to do some public speaking? That's the best way to get visible is present to two, 300 people in one go. Are you on LinkedIn? Are you having a strong digital presence? Are you networking? So visibility is really important. Um, but the next one is also so important, authenticity. You know, do you know who you really are as a person? Are you very creative? Are you very structured? You know, are you someone who's quite laid back? I'm not, <laughs> in case you can't tell. So are you, are you quite energetic? And how are you communicating that? So I'm quite a structured, energetic person. And my clothing says that. If I was wildly creative, which I'm not, sadly, but if I was a creative innovator, then you would expect me to wear something a bit more unusual. And if I didn't, if I turned up dressed like this and then I started saying some really unusual things, the audience would be thrown a bit because I'm not delivering what they're expecting. So authenticity is all about understanding who you are and the good bits about that, but also making sure that what you present is an accurate reflection of yourself. And then the final part is authority. And authority is how do you make sure people listen to you, respect you, take you seriously? And I know we've spoken about this before. There's, there's a natural bias that basically if you're a tall white man, people respect your opinions more than others. That's, that's discussed on its own by lots of other people. We don't need to get into the whys and wherefores of why that is. But it does mean that if you're not one of those people, you might have to work harder to build that natural authority in your presence. And authority comes from, again, how do you dress? Are you making an effort? Are you dressing in high quality clothes or are you looking a bit of a shambles when you turn up to work? You know, do you look like you take yourself seriously? If you want to get to a certain level, are you dressing like people dress at that level? And then the other aspect is how you present yourself. You know, do you share your experience? Do you let people know what you're good at? Do you come to meetings prepared so that when you say things, they actually are interesting, insightful, accurate, and you have a positive impact? And all those things give you that authority so that when you say something, people listen to you and they actually respect what you're saying. I think that's really interesting. And I remember having a, a conversation with one of my other guests who, who was a female. And she was saying that in her organization, sometimes it seemed like the men could come into meetings and almost wing it and they could get away <laughs> with it. Whereas with the women were almost over-preparing. Um, and I said to her, look, I'd much prefer somebody who was over-prepared rather than somebody who is talking nonsense because you just don't have any confidence. Maybe that person can get, can get away with it once, but if you're doing that on a consistent basis, it's actually quite disrespectful in a way. And you, you're thinking this guy just doesn't get it. I think times have changed from when we started in the city and you could get away with it more. And now you can't. And now people will notice if someone's dominating a meeting and not giving equal share of voice. And if they're saying things, but they actually don't have any depth to them. So I think it's harder to get away with that. I just don't think there's any downside to coming to a meeting well prepared and, and making a positive contribution. Ultimately, that's what's important. But again, how you present yourself makes a difference. If you make some really valid points, but you've got a very kind of closed, cautious body language and you're looking down and you're not taking space, you don't sound that confident. People might not take what you're saying, you know, as something they should follow, whereas I would turn up to meetings. I would literally spread out on the desk because I'm quite small. So I'd have a big mug and have my notepads. I'd take space up. I'd speak with confidence. And sometimes I'd speak with confidence and someone would write down something I'd said. And inside I'm thinking, why are you writing that down? I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I presented myself with confidence so people respected me. So that's where I'm working with clients, both male and female, but often more introverted clients, to just have a bit more skill and practice in how they present themselves and communicate so that their very valid, well-prepared points also land well. No, yeah, totally agree. And this whole idea of confidence, I think that makes such a difference to your um, life and your career, because you might be the greatest person you know, out there. But if you can't uh, project that your true personality to the world and your colleagues, you're just not going to get on, which is really sad in a way. But I do think it's that element of almost marketing yourself to your colleagues, to the world and to the organization, because then if they see you're interacting on LinkedIn and you're doing it and you're getting this sort of third party approval, then they take confidence in that, that you're a credible person. Absolutely. That external brand, how you present yourself, all of that helps project confidence. And in a way, it gives you confidence because if you see what's being played back and people respond well to it, or even if you're presenting and you look at yourself in the mirror before you go into a meeting or present and you like how you're dressed, you know, the kind of 80s power dressing. But if whatever you're wearing, if it makes you feel good, you're more likely to present well. Whereas if you look and you think, oh, I look tired and I don't look great, you won't be as confident. So that's the kind of outside in job. But there's also an inside out job you have to do, which is where the growth mindset from Carol Dweck comes in and where we have to understand our own psychology. And this is where there's a couple of things that go on here. One of them is understanding limiting beliefs, understanding the narrative we have in our head of what we tell ourselves we can and can't do. And a lot of my work is helping people in a way deprogram those things, you know, using neuro-linguistic programming. How do we tell our brains that we're actually really good and capable and competent instead of having a mental narrative of, oh, I'm not very good at that and I'm going to make a mistake and then I'll get fired and then I'll lose my job and we go into the disaster. So one aspect is I think all of us have limiting beliefs. I still have them regularly, but knowing how to work through those and overcome them. And the other one is about building your resilience muscle and building your confidence by challenging yourself to do things that you're scared of. And actually, David Goggins' book, Can't Hurt Me, is a really fun and inspiring read on this. But he's someone who's completed some of the most amazing physical challenges. I mean, it's slightly insane what he does. But his message is very clear. It's that if you challenge yourself in any area of your life, so if, you, if you're scared at work, but you challenge yourself physically outside of work, you complete some challenge you didn't think you could do. Your brain registers, wow, I can actually do things I didn't realize I was capable of. And so you start to build this resilience, confidence muscle. And you think, okay, I can take on the next thing. And you don't need to start with something big like he does. His first challenge is a hundred mile run from nothing. Okay, so he's a bit of a, he's a bit extreme. But I get my clients to just start with little challenges, just do little things, take on little challenges of things that are slightly out of your comfort zone. It's exactly what I did. I started just saying a few things in a meeting as a very nervous junior graduate to challenging myself to I'm going to run the meeting, to challenging myself to I'm going to ask a question at the town hall, even though that makes me nervous, to challenging myself to I'm going to host the town hall. So you take these little steps and each time you do one of those things and it's scary, but afterwards you're still alive and the world didn't end, that builds your confidence and that's how you keep going. And that comes back to that quote at the beginning. Don't stay in the safe harbour. You know, take tentative trips out to sea and then come back for a break and then take another trip. And that's how you build that confidence organically. It's funny you say that, Emily, because literally three months ago, I had no podcast, no name <laughs> for the podcast, no guests. I met somebody who invited me onto her podcast and essentially said, I'm, I'm starting it quite, quite soon. 
And then I knew I had a hard deadline by which I had to basically release my podcast. I was almost like trying to reverse engineer the whole process and think, what is it that I really need to get done? Like cover art, I need a name, I need some guests. <laughs> but but it can be done. And, and it was this really crazy day. I think it was a 20th of January where I basically released my first two episodes. My episode on this lady's podcast was released and I was um, hosting a webinar. I, I think the point of this is it just shows that you're capable of doing a lot more. And, mm. and funny enough, at that time, I had no idea of uh, starting a YouTube channel. But then because I had the footage from Zoom, I thought, why not? And that's been really successful. And I just hit a thousand views, which is actually quite good um, for somebody with like no brand, no image, no nothing. So, <laughs> <laughs> And that's where you enter that reinforcing loop. You challenged yourself, you know, and that sounds a bit stressful. Some people are thinking that's probably a bit stressful. You put yourself through some stress to launch the podcast and then you and then you get this kind of satisfying reward because that's actually you know we already knew each other but that's why we ended up doing this because I reached out and said wow this podcast is fantastic so people start coming back and saying this is brilliant and that's actually it was worth the stress you know it's worth the effort and then you go okay so I've done that now I can do YouTube and you know for some people watching who are very natural technical people that will all sound really easy but I know for you that's not something that just comes naturally so that was all a challenge yeah I only got my first smartphone I think four or five years ago <laughs> I don't remember having this conversation with somebody when they said, oh, I'll message you via WhatsApp. It's like, what's WhatsApp? So going from that to where I am now. And what has that done for your confidence? I certainly feel a lot better about podcasting. Um, definitely my friends have said it's improved significantly since you know, episode one to now. And also it's this whole idea of um, people reaching out to me like yourself. And the only sad thing about having you on the podcast is that you gave such a nice review. I can't really use that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, for anyone watching, it was very genuine. I had no idea I would be featured. That was a very genuine review. And, you know, I work in the world of careers and I think there's, there's a lot of great, very motivational content out there, but there isn't a lot of practical content. And so I immediately loved that you were getting experts on and it was, you know, amazing insights, but at the same time, really actionable advice. So that was a very genuine, honest review. And then we got chatting and then, you know, now I'm here. Brilliant. And, and I'm glad you're here, Melly. But, but I think that leads on to a really interesting point about just getting things done, because I think so many people are worried about perfection. I definitely am someone who likes to take action and I'm pushing my clients to not procrastinate so much, not spend so long thinking about what they want to do and trying to come up with a perfect answer and instead go out and do things and experiment and find out. So in that regard, I totally agree. And when we when we try and come up with a perfect life plan and we're worried about making a misstep or making a mistake, we miss the point. Life is full of mistakes. That's how we learn and that's how we discover. So that in that regard, I think perfectionism can really hold us back. But sometimes in work, high standards are also highly beneficial. So I am someone who has high standards for myself and others. And I think it can be really important. But it's about navigating when it's the right time to have that focus. So 50% of my time is one to one coaching. And 50% of my time is working with corporate clients on their branding and marketing and authentically marketing themselves to their clients. So if I'm working with a client on their brand, I want their logo to be perfect. I want the copy on their website to be perfect. And that's, it's almost like knowing when it's time to use that skill. That's a time to use that focus and, and really pay attention. 
And then with other things I might be working on where I need to get them to a good standard, but I don't need to spend hours and hours on them. It's about knowing when it's good enough, understanding, okay, at this point, I've reached a good enough standard. I'm proud of this. I can deliver it and move on. That's a different point for everybody. But if you're someone who naturally is a perfectionist, start looking at when it's good enough. And if you're someone who's very laid back and is almost the opposite of that, start thinking about when will it be important for me to pay extra attention to here? Like what tasks should I really focus on and deliver to a high standard? Because that will be good for the people I'm delivering for, but also that will be good for me. And sometimes it's, it is important that we deliver to a very high level. And I think that that's a great point, thinking about what are your sort of uh, strong points and your strengths and your natural inclination, and then try and make up for it slightly by understanding, you know, if you're a perfectionist, maybe dial back. If you're on the other side, yeah, maybe you really have to focus on these small things. Um, so, yeah, totally. And, and, and this, is, this is all about... Go ahead. I was just going to say, this is about playing to strengths and weaknesses, because for some people, being a perfectionist is their strength. You know, I've got clients who work in, in law or compliance and having a laser attention to detail and not making a mistake makes them brilliant at their job. So there's a really nice fit there between their strengths and their job. And then they have to understand maybe if they're a less flexible person, they just have to be mindful of when will it actually be helpful for me to be a bit more flexible and know this is good enough. And then the flip side is there are people who are very dynamic and creative and unstructured in some ways who do brilliant work in startups in more innovative environments or even in science in the field of innovation there. They're exploring all over the place and being quite dynamic and that's playing to their strengths but sometimes they need to stop and put a bit more structure around it so that's where coaching is super helpful because coaching helps you understand yourself and understand your strengths and maybe your blind spots or weaknesses so you can get a job that plays to those strengths and at the same time you just have a mind to your weaknesses and blind spots and you can just you know you can just compensate for them when you need to Brilliant. The thing about this podcast is very much about giving practical advice and strategies um, for people who are either looking for work now, and obviously there are a lot of people mm. in a hard, hard situation, but also if you're in work. So I suppose the first thing I'd like to think about is uncertainty, because in a way, I think it's only going to get worse rather than better. So how do you think you can prepare yourself for uncertainty? Are there any particular strategies that you would recommend, Emily? Well, I've talked about it a lot in my webinars this year because the last 12 months, it was a whole period of uncertainty and it wasn't helped by ever-changing rules around lockdown. Now in life, we need a balance. We all need a bit of variety and a bit of fun and risk and we need a bit of certainty. And some of us need a lot of certainty. So for, for people who need a lot, that was a very challenging period of time. So there's a few things here. One of them is try and take control where you can. So if you don't have certainty about certain things in your life, but can you even just put a bit of structure in order to your day? You know, routine became really important for these clients. Having a regular time to go and exercise, a regular time for work. Even having a good declutter and organize at home can make you feel that you've got a bit of certainty. Another aspect is to give yourself a bit of a an uncertainty holiday. So when the rules kept changing and I had people saying, I don't know if I could travel or I don't know if I'm going into off the office, I would say, let's just decide what's going to happen for the next four weeks. And we were just dealing one month at a time. And we were saying, right, for the next four weeks, let's just assume that we're in lockdown 100%. You won't go to the office. Let's decide some certainty. And then you make plans within that framework. And just don't worry about what the framework will be in six months time, because we have no idea. So sometimes it's about almost narrowing the time frame that we look at. But the other aspect is we've had a huge opportunity 
to become more resilient to change. And although most of us are exhausted by it now, when we have gotten out of lockdown, a few years down the road, we'll realise we are all a lot more resilient and adaptable than we had been before the crisis. So it's also about reflecting and saying, well, in what ways can I become more adaptive to change? And also, if negative emotions come up, actually, it's okay to have negative emotions in uncertainty, but maybe I can learn how I deal with those emotions. I actually wrote an article recently for Thrive Global on why unhappiness is helpful and how we should process negative emotions and and listen to the messages they're giving to us. So if you felt quite anxious in this uncertainty and you're desperately trying not to, maybe you're missing the point. Maybe you shouldn't try not to feel anxious. Maybe you should just pay attention to that anxiety and from it, learn what it is you're anxious about and actually get a deeper understanding of yourself. No, that, that, that's really interesting because it's that whole idea of trying to drill down to the root cause, but but also not being um, reluctant to feel bad because you know, mm. sometimes you might be going for an interview and you don't get the job and you, you should give yourself permission to grieve and feel bad about it because especially if you put a lot of uh, effort and energy into that process and it comes to nothing, then it's understandable if you're unhappy. Well, with emotions, you have to accept that the full range, you know, if you want to be a robot, then you won't have any high or lows but if you want the human experience which is joy and love and excitement and all those positive emotions you have to accept that with it comes anxiety and stress and despair it's actually part of the human experience so expecting to be happy all the time or even beating yourself up for not feeling good is so unkind to yourself and it's just not authentic to the human experience but if you learn not to resist your negative emotions and to recognize them and listen to them it's amazing how much more quickly they pass and we've also just got to look at what we've been through I mean such hardship you know I've lost relatives so many people have in this crisis it's part of the process is to feel sad and to have negative emotions and you've got to look at it and just say is this realistic does this reflect my experience if your whole life is wonderful and you're experiencing some very negative strong anxieties and depression that's ongoing then you might think there's a disconnect there I should go and get some professional help but if you've just genuinely had a really stressful day at work that's the end of a very stressful few months working from home and the challenges that that brings of working with your partner and your children and you're feeling quite stressed and annoyed just stop and think is this a rational reaction I think it is a rational reaction to what we've been through find a healthy outlet for it but also just don't beat yourself up for feeling like that I know totally women seem to have had a unfair share of um, you know, childcare, teaching their kids. You know, already you're in a stressful environment, but there's all this other stuff piling on. Um, mm-hmm. I can't imagine if I had to teach my kids and all that sort of stuff, it would be really difficult. Hugely difficult. I mean, hugely difficult for everybody, but there will have been this extra burden on women. In some ways, everything being on Zoom has been a great equalizer because we all get the same amount of screen. So there's more of an equal share of voice. And of course, for women who've always wanted to work from home and maybe had those requests rejected, it's a great advancement that now they can work from home and maybe even have more flexible hours. And that was all great while children were in school. But once you shut the schools down, then it becomes very challenging for all parents. And often it is women who end up stepping up and doing more childcare. And sometimes that's because women earn less. So if you're making an economic decision in the household of who's going to dial down their work, then that decision is almost made by the finances, which isn't really 
a problem within a specific couple. You know, that's a that's a problem across industry. And that's where we need to look at making sure we have real pay equality for everybody. So there's been gains and there's obviously been you know challenges there. But I've I also have lots of male clients who've been struggling to homeschool their children. So there are lots of men out there who are also sharing the burden. Very good. I suppose in terms of um other job strategy that you think would be helpful for people? Well, as well as preparing yourself properly for interview, and I'm doing lots of interview coaching, live interview practice with clients. If you've got an interview, prepare in the video context, you know, check your setup, record yourself, get some feedback about how you come across, think about what you're going to wear, all those things. But also if the, if the last 12 months has made you stop and think, hmm, maybe I don't love this job as much as I think I do, or maybe I don't need all this money to buy my sports car and boat, and I want to do something that's more fulfilling. That's brilliant. But a lot of people then try and rush to the decision of what they should do next. And this is where I say, First of all, just stop and reflect. Take some time. You can do it while you've got your current job going on, but take some time to stop and think, what do I really love doing? When am I most productive? And what are my natural strengths, including what is it that you seem to just find easier than everybody else? Because often the things we find easy, we don't value, but they're actually the things we're naturally good at. So really think about that and even think about what did I want to do when I was younger and reflect on earlier dreams. So first of all, reflect. Secondly, daydream about the future. You know, take some time to just think in a dream world, what would my future life look like? And what work would I do as part of that? What environment would I be in? Would it be fast paced? Would it be research based? Would I be working on my own? Am I in a team? Am I in an office? Am I working from home? Don't worry about the job. Just visualize in quite a loose way what you would like for yourself. And you can even go on a vision walk where Sometimes people find this easier when they're moving. You just go for a long walk and just think about what you'd like in your life. And then the third step is to go exploring. Instead of trying to come up with this answer of, right, well, what job should I now apply for? Start looking at which jobs are available. See what's out there in the market. How does that, how close does that get you to your vision? Talk to as many people as possible. Ask them about their jobs. What do they do? What do they love about it? How did they get into it? If you can go and do an internship, a work experience, whatever stage of your career, can you shadow someone? Can you just, when we can meet again, can you buy someone a coffee or can you have a Zoom call with them and just ask them for 20 minutes about what they do? That you really need to explore because I guarantee you at this point, you don't know the answer of your perfect job until you've reflected dreamt and explored you probably won't find your dream job but it's in doing that process that something will come along and you'll have this moment where you think oh okay this is what I was looking for I think that's really interesting because I think until you actually start the journey you have no idea you know a, whether you'll be good at it or you'll enjoy doing it. So you just need to get out there, do the research, do some work to really figure out what, mm. what you enjoy. And it's all very well and good thinking theoretically what I'd like to do. But I think that point you made about your skills is so important because there are things that come quite naturally um, to, to certain people, which, yeah, you just don't value. For other people, they just, they just can't, can't do it. Um, you know, say if you if you like uh, speaking to clients and you like small talk, um, then you should potentially go into more of a, a client facing role. Whereas there's some people, and I'm sure you've seen them in banking and finance, the last thing they want to do is go and speak to somebody. And also, you wouldn't want them to be in front of somebody because they're just not very good. That's not their skill set. You're you're good at dealing with people. I'm similar, so I quite like the sort of client facing sort of thing. So it's really figuring out what is what you're good at and trying to really um, strengthen that. Absolutely, it's figuring out what you're good at and play to your strengths. 
and just knowing that there is the right person for every job and the right job for every person you know don't worry about what your friends think you should do or what your parents think you should do or even what you think you should be doing look at finding the job that really plays to your strengths and helps you be you know what I call maximum you you know really playing to your strengths and being your best self. But also let's let go of the idea that we will always love our jobs every day. And there won't be periods in our lives where we have a job that maybe isn't quite the right fit. And that doesn't mean it's not teaching us anything. I've definitely had in banking, I've had years where I've just been in the right area and I've loved every moment. And then there's definitely been moments where I was a bit stuck somewhere and it wasn't quite the right fit. But I had faith that it would end up in the right place. And I decided to learn everything I could and extract all the juice out of that situation. And that's really the growth mindset. Again, it's not it's not getting frustrated if things aren't always going perfectly. It's acknowledging that part of a career these days is that there will be moments that are great and there will be moments that are frustrating and difficult, that you can learn from all of them. It's all part of the experience. That's a great point that even in bad situations, so if you have a, a, a boss who's not that great, that's still a learning situation because you still have to show up, you still have to do your work and you have to figure out a way of making them see the best in you rather than the worst. Mm. I wouldn't recommend it on a long-term basis, but for a short period of time, there's a lot you can learn. And then hopefully when you get into a better situation, then uh, it's a lot easier. I, I was mentoring someone who was quite junior in an organization and they were in this job and they really had a, a clash with their boss for some reason. Their boss seemed to really not like them and was being very difficult. And so they ultimately, if you have a boss who's not on your side, you will need to move because that's not a positive environment to be in. So they were going to move jobs but I said to them well why don't you set yourself a challenge that between now and when you leave you challenge yourself to build as good a relationship as you can with this boss and to get them to like you as much as possible and to do this I'm going to teach you about emotional intelligence about influencing skills about communication skills and this person took on the challenge and by the time they left this very difficult manager gave a lovely heartwarming leaving speech for them about how sad they were that this person was leaving and they managed to totally turn it around because they just saw it as a a, a challenge and a, a moment in which they could build their skills and they left the organization with a good relationship with their ex-boss and actually being much more capable at influencing and communicating than they had before and that is such a good way of dealing with that situation and that's brilliant because actually that really sums up this podcast it's about changing perception reframing uh, the the situation that you're in and trying to turn things around because sometimes it could be that uh, maybe you haven't been communicating with them on areas that they like if they like and for example, sport, maybe, and if you don't, you have to figure out a way of finding out a little bit about you know, what they like doing and talk to them about those things. Or there are these small things which you can do. And if you do that over a regular basis, then you can shift that relationship. Absolutely. I mean, Dale, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People is a very old book, but it's still very true. And there's so much in there that if you have some difficult people you work with, you can just use them as tra a training ground for using Dale Carnegie's advice and just see how it goes. Well, firstly, Warren Buffett loves Dale Carnegie. And, and the, second really <laughs> the second really interesting thing which just came to me now is that yeah, view these difficult situations as an experiment. So it's not Emily or Harsha. Mm. It's yeah, our alter egos in these horrible situations with these yes. bosses. And then yeah, the, the whole personal situation is not there. It's that third party. How does that third party deal with that boss or that difficult colleagues or whatever it is? And then it's just taking that step back and it just changes your whole perception and your, you don't have to really take it personally. 
Well, some of my biggest career breakthroughs came after very challenging periods where I had very challenging people to work with. And they were you know, very frustrating moments where you almost gave up. And at the same time, they were moments of huge growth. And then at the end of them, I'd have some big promotion or some big progress. So there's also this idea of growing pains, you know, that, that we go through with children and they have developmental stages and they get frustrated. But sometimes when we're going through, through something quite tough, we should realize that what we experience is growing pains and we're developing and often something good is about to come as a result of it. And I think that's a brilliant note um, to sort of uh, draw the podcast to a close, Emily. But before we leave, um, is there anybody you'd like to give a shout out? Um, I quite like to give my guests that opportunity because I think to come to this stage in our careers, there's so many people who have helped, you know, giving you advice. <laughs> One of them is Nick Caesar, who I somehow convinced to come and help me set up the coaching team at RBS. He's a very experienced, brilliant coach. And now he's head of, head of talent for the whole organization. So I owe a huge amount to Nick. He taught my, me and the team of coaches so much. And then all of the coaches who joined my team who took a risk to come and work for me. That was fantastic. One of them is one of my best friends, JP Dalman. And he has the amazing Impact Leaders podcast. So another podcast to recommend. And he left banking and started working in the world of impact investing and creating positive change in the world. Through him, I was introduced to The Conduit, which is a brilliant club for people who want to have a positive impact in the world. Through The Conduit, I met Lawrence Knott, who is a fellow coach, and we now are regular collaborators. So I have a lot of love for Lawrence. And then my final thank you would go to Simon Greenlee. And Simon was kind enough to become a mentor and friend for me and really help guide me in the world of corporate consulting. And of course, to you, Harsha, because it's such a, no, it's such a joy to be on this podcast. You and I could just talk and talk. And I always have so much fun when we're chatting. That's very kind of me. I'm getting wet. <laughs> the podcast is brilliant. I love it. That's so kind, Emily. And yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time today. And I think the whole idea of the serendipity about putting stuff into the world, because you know, just for our listeners, I'd met Emily once uh, in the physical world before she appeared <laughs> on this podcast. But obviously we knew each other. And then, you know, when you know, I released my stuff into the world and, you gave such a, an effusive thank you. Anyway, in, enjoy the uh, the rest of your day and, and thank you so much, Emily. Really appreciate uh, you for taking the time today. Thank you, Harsha. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.